Hey, it's Francis, and I have a problem. The amount of caffeine my body likes in a day is exactly one 12-ounce cup of coffee. But after making this episode last year, like, all I want to do all day is sip on pot after pot of tea after I have that coffee. So I hope you don't suffer the same fate as I do. Take a listen. I'm Francis Lamb, and you're listening to The Splendid Table from APM. Hey, so put on your coffee, because I don't want you to spit it out. But did you know that around the world, people drink three times more tea than coffee? Tea is by far the most consumed drink in the world, next only to water. And yet, it feels like so many of us know so little about it. Okay, so to be fair, here in the U.S., we are much more a coffee country. Something like 60% of American adults drink coffee, compared to only 25% who drink tea. But around the world, and especially in Asia, tea rules. And it pretty much always has. Human beings' love of tea has led to wars of conquest and all kinds of barbaries over it. But we've also created immensely rich cultures of how to enjoy it, rituals for preparing and sharing it, ceremonies and devotionals around it. And so today, we're going to scratch the surface of a couple of the great tea traditions of the world. Later on in the show, we're going to learn about the fascinating history and a fantastic way to make masala chai, India's revolutionary entry to the tea canon. We're going to start at a little tea tasting room, squirreled away down an unassuming hallway in Nolita, Manhattan. It's a tranquil little space called Tea Shop, and its proprietress, Teresa Wong, sat me down to give us the full 101 of the major styles of Chinese and Taiwanese tea and how to enjoy them. So, Teresa, when we were talking yesterday, I love how you told me that you grew up in Hong Kong, you know, which was a British colony when we were kids, and that you actually, you, you weren't from a family of tea drinkers, and the only way you really drank tea was sort of in that British Hong Kong style, which is with milk, black tea with milk, or, you know, with lemon and honey. Um, but here, we're actually doing something very different. This is very sort of traditional, typical Chinese-style tea, no milk, no honey, and it's just different kinds of tea steeped in water. So I've heard that there are 3,000 varieties of tea, so how do you break it down? So teas are broken down in majorly six categories. Okay. Green tea, white tea, yellow tea, oolong tea, black tea, and poor tea. Those are major categories in Chinese tea. Um, tea is all from the same plants. Camellia sinensis. Mm. So um, what makes them different is mostly because of their processing. So um, mostly determined by their oxidation level to determine this is a green tea, white tea, oolong tea, or black tea. Okay. That's how, how it goes. Yeah. So it's not like in wine, it's different grapes, and in you know, coffee, it's more about the different origins. It's about the processing, how the they've processing. actually been yes. harvested and processed. Yeah, there okay. are obviously many different varietals. So yeah. people would use particular varietal for a particular style. Okay. But it doesn't mean that this varietal cannot be used for the other. So today we actually have an example that we have a Korean varietal that usually people use for green tea. Mm. But we request the farmer to use the same season tea to fully oxidize to make into black tea as well. So we have one tea that is from one farmer, same season, 
um, same varietal, okay. but one is green tea, one is black tea because they are different processing. Oh, cool. And so yeah. we'll be able to taste the difference purely yes. in the processing then. Yes. Cool. And actually, before we get into tasting, how, how does a tea go from white tea to green to yellow to oolong to black to pu'er, if I got mm-hmm. that right? Um, physically, how is a tea sort of treated to create that oxidation? So um, when I talk about oxidation, I always compare to apple. It's like after you cut apple open, it starts turning brown color from the edges. Mm-hmm. That's when the oxidation starts taking place. And the longer you expose to the air, is turning more brown color. Same thing with the tea leaves. So um, with green tea, that is one tea without oxidation. It's after it's being baked, people send to pan drying or steaming. Okay. Use high temperature to stop the tea from going to oxidation. Okay, okay. That's why the tea has very green color. Um, versus uh, when we go to oxidation, is after picking, they put on a tray and then on a rack of many trays together. Um, depends on the weather and humidity, it could take 10 to 20 hours or even more than, uh, even like up to a day mm-hmm. to sit in there. The processing is to let the tea soften a little bit. Mm. And then it would go to indoor oxidation, which they would have a very warm, warmer room, okay. and then put the tea on the floor, and then um, just let it sit there until it start turning color, turning more brown. Farmer would come in to check to see like how's the oxidation to flip the tea over, mm-hmm. so they would be more evenly. Sure. And then it would when he decided to stop oxidation then it would go to shaping the leaves and also drying, and then you would go to finish the tea. So the oxidation, how long it takes, determine the tea is oolong tea or black tea. Yeah. And for white tea is, um, is a little bit different. Is, mm. um, it doesn't go into the intentionally oxidation process. Okay. It just pick and dry, so naturally dry. But while it's waiting for naturally dry, it might take some time. So oxidation happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very mildly, oxidation happens while we're waiting for drying. Okay. Um, and the difference between that and the green tea, the green tea is heat-treated to stop the oxidation. Mm-hmm. So it does prevent any oxidation. Prevent oxidation. That's like if you cook an apple, like you said. Yes. The apple doesn't turn brown mm-hmm. after you cooked it. Yeah. Yeah. And for poor tea, it's very interesting. Uh, there are two major categories of poor tea. Okay. It could be the raw poor tea, which was almost like a green tea of poor, but over time as it ages, it becomes darker. Okay. So it's like naturally oxidation throughout time, maybe yeah, 10, 20 years. Yeah, okay. So this is not a couple ages. hours. This is Not a couple hours. Uh, or we call a kupur, shopur, that is uh, go through a fermentation process that makes the tea darker to begin with. And instead of waiting 10, 20 years for it to get dark. Mm, okay. Yeah. So now that we have the varieties, mm-hmm. should we do some tasting? Yes. See what they're, how, how they differ? <laughs> so um, I always tell customer, I know when people come in the shop, they get very excited, especially when they see all those like small teaware, teacups. It's super cute. And they want to buy everything. I was like, <laughs> no, the first thing you should get is good tea first. Okay. And then start drinking good tea in your own way. 
And then when you develop more interest, over time you build up your collection of tea wares. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> um, so very, very important is start with good tea because even good tea, you don't brew it like Kung Fu style, just very casually drinking it. You can still tell the quality. And um, a lot of our tea, when we work with our farmer, actually we specific uh, looking for tea that is very friendly to brew. So that means no matter how you brew it, mm. it always you can enjoy it. Okay, um, so today I actually prepare um, one green tea okay. and the black tea with the same farmer, same season that we were okay. talking so about. So it's literally the same tea from the same place from the same time. Just one is green and one is black. Yeah. Okay. And then one white tea okay. and two oolong tea. To brew in the mud, just put the tea leaves in at hot water. Okay. Yep. So the first question I have always is, how much tea do you use and how much water? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. I compare yeah. tea to cooking a lot. Oh, okay. When you ask your grandma, like, how a recipe, she's like, a little bit of salt, yeah, a just little enough. bit of yeah, that. Yeah, just put in enough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the tea is the same way. So uh, actually, I thought about that, and I actually do my own measurement early this morning just oh. to give an estimate. Okay, great, great. So you can see the tea has different shapes, the tea leaves. Sure. One that looks very different is a road into a ball shape. Mm-hmm. This is a most likely a Taiwanese oolong style that they wrote into ball shape. Yeah. With that tea, I would say do around one teaspoon. Okay. And then the other tea, like loose leaf. The loose leaf. They're twist. long, they're hard to fit in a teaspoon. Yeah, or... I would say one tablespoon. Okay. So when I do the exact measurement, it's around three grams of the tea. Okay. And then we put in the mud. And how much water? Uh, just feel it like, um, this is probably six ounces. Okay. Yeah. And so we're brewing this tea in sort of a typical steep, Fashion, right? You're going to put tea leaves in the mug. You're going to put hot water in it. After mm-hmm. a few minutes, we pour it out and we drink it. But you've talked about Kung Fu style. What is Kung Fu style? It's a different method of, of preparing the tea. Yes. Kung Fu style is um, more tea leaves, less water. So yeah. we get a more intense taste of tea. Yeah. And we put in effort to brew the tea. A little yeah. bit more effort. A little bit more skill. Yeah. Um, we usually start with smaller vessel. The one I'm using today is a gaiwan. And this one is, I think, is under three ounces. Mm-hmm. And with this gaiwan, I will put around five to seven grams of tea. Okay. And then I will dip each infusions around 15 to 30 seconds. Super fast. Super fast. Yeah. But this way, I'm actually able to re-steep the tea multiple more times. Yeah. And... What I really love about it is each infusion is always a fresh, hot cup of tea. Yeah. And everyone tastes different, right? I think yes. that, that's kind of like the idea. There's so much tea in there, like yeah. so many tea leaves, and such a short steep that the way it was sort of described to me, I think it's so interesting. It's almost like each infusion like takes another layer of flavor out of the tea. So you can taste the different layers of flavor as it changes. Yes. Also... The smell changes too. Mm. Um, yeah, the first time when I tried tea this way, like Kung Fu style, I was first, I was so blown away. Like every cup is so different. And I'm still drinking the same tea, but every cup is just different. And um, I start doing it at home. And what makes me keep doing it every day is I really love the process. Mm. Uh, it's very calming. 
Um, it's almost like meditation. Sometimes people would describe it like meditation in movement. Mm. You know, when we do Tai Chi, it's like we're moving very slowly. So it's every movement we are very mindful of that, and that's almost like meditation. And brewing tea is the same way too. So right now you're putting the tea leaves just into these beautiful little mugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually would say, except for green tea, most tea you can use boiling water, which is 212 Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, green tea is usually a little bit more delicate, so I would say around 185 to 190 Fahrenheit. Okay. Yes. So that's like you boil the water and you let it sit for like a yes. minute or two before you use it. Okay. Yeah. I never really use a thermometer either. <laughs> uh, and just add water. Okay. I love the sight of this. I love to use these clear mugs because it's so beautiful when the tea, when the water hits the tea and it just starts to make the tea leaves dance. Yes. I love that. We'll be back with more of Teresa Wong of Tea Shop and her teas. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're learning about how to fall in love with East Asian tea with authority Teresa Wong of the Tea Shop New York. So brew yourself a cup. Let's get back to it with her. We're just about to start tasting. Thank you. Yeah. So this is the green tea. Yes. So this is a Korean green tea. Mm-hmm. Um, Chinese and Korean green tea, they have the same style, which most of them, they are using pen drying. Okay. So the flavor is slightly nuttier. Yeah. A tastes... little bit like green peas. Totally. Uh, versus... The Japanese green tea is used steaming to stop the oxidation. So it's a little bit more umami, seaweed taste. Mm. Uh, so yeah. like matcha, when people have matcha. matcha like that's, yes. that's why there's that sort of, it's a very different flavor. Yeah, it's very different. So um, this is a Korean green tea. It's more similar. You taste a little bit like chestnut to me. It's like nutty, but very powdery, very soft kind. Yeah, um, it definitely tastes a little bit toasty, like you said. Yeah. Almost like... um. Almost like a grain, like mm-hmm. barley or something like that. Very light, very... Slightly cigarette. sweet at the end. Mm-hmm. Not bitter. Not bitter. Yeah. <laughs> and a little bit astringent. Like you, can feel yeah. your, you can feel your tongue like, sort yes. of like get a little bit dry, a little bit tighten up, but mm-hmm. like in a pleasant way. Yes. So um, a lot of people were very afraid of bitter or astringent in tea, but it's actually very normal. Mm-hmm. Because tea has tannin in it, just like wine. Mm-hmm. So um, you should be able to differentiate a good bitter and a bad bitter. Sure. So a good tea is you notice the bitter or you notice the astringency, but it has a lot more going on besides mm-hmm. the bitter and astringency. And it's very pleasant. Even though you notice that, it doesn't really bother you. Yeah, it doesn't and, make your face go like... Ugh. Yes, yes. Uh, and a bad one is um, usually due to poor quality or poor processing is something that you taste just uh, very flat bitterness and it doesn't have other sweetness that go along with it. Mm. And those we try to avoid that. Yeah. It would be interesting to try the black tea okay. uh, after. So you will see how the oxidation makes the tea different. So this is the same, again, same tea. This is just black versus green, yes. the way it's treated. Okay. 
Mm. Like right away, you can smell it's very different. Yeah, it's a little bit more floral. Totally. Uh, you complex. smell a lot more sweetness. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's a lot deeper. Mm-hmm. Like the flavor. Yeah, and more complex. Yeah. The green tea is more delicate. Like mm-hmm. you taste a lot more freshness. Um, it's just sweeter, deeper. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, oxidation due to tea mm. it changes the taste profile. The roasting and the oxidation create layers in the tea that brings out more body and nuances in the tea. So a good tea farmer or tea maker, they know when to, what to do to bring out the best of the tea. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to taste a white tea. Okay. Okay, I just tasted the white tea. I always thought white tea, oh, white is white and green is green. So like a white would be lighter than green, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, a lot of people would be like, I don't like white tea. It doesn't taste like anything. It, I, it, it, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe it's just the quality of this tea, but this tastes like vanilla. It tastes so much like vanilla. Sweet. Super sweet. Slightly creamy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why you think of vanilla. Uh, for me, it's like soy milk. Sometimes sure. it's like slightly nutty, creamy soy milk. It um, has a little more bitterness. Um, and it definitely has more astringency also. Yeah. And also a little bit like rose water. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally, totally. And then we're gonna, we have two oolong tea left. Okay. F- from what you can see, the color looks very, very different. Very different. Yes. Okay, so, so, so this was a different tasting almost entirely because I, I remember earlier when we spoke, you said, I want you to taste two different oolong so you see how different oolong can be. So yeah. most green teas will be in the range of what we tasted for green tea. Yes. Most black tea is in the range of what we taste for black tea. But oolong is its own kind of beast. And yeah, looking at the two, one, the leaf itself, itself is still quite green. Um, it looks like, you know, collard greens that have been stewing for a little while. It's like a little bit brownish and green. Um, but the tea is still pretty clear and slightly green. And the other looks very dark. It's actually the darkest one on the table, darker than the black tea. Yeah, so oolong tea is anything that is semi-oxidized. So when we think about semi-oxidized, it could be 20% oxidation, 50% oxidation, or it could be 80% oxidation. Okay. And on top of that, it could be done with or without roasting. Okay. So um, the one that you're drinking right now, it looks very green, mm-hmm. which is very minimal oxidation. It's like yeah. uh, very lightly oxidized, so it tastes still very close to a green tea. A green tea. This is a very typical style of Taiwanese high mountain oolong. Mm. This is actually a high mountain oolong, like slightly green color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the tea it's is like green beans. Yeah, golden color. Um, so that's a uh, Taiwanese style high mountain oolong tea. Popcorn and green beans. Popcorn, yeah. This tea is actually very buttery. Um, yeah. Oh, nice. And. The other oolong tea we have, which is a darker one, is from Wuyi Mountain in China, Fujian, China. Okay. Um, that region is particularly very famous for a oolong tea called Yan Cha, a style called Yan Cha, which is, um, if we translate it, it means cliff tea. So the tea grows along the cliffs, mm. and traditionally they are very heavy roasted. So um, this one is a Telohan. Yes, it's uh, very traditionally three-time roasted, so you can see very dark. Yeah. 
Uh, roasted three times. Yeah. Wow. So tea can be done with or without roasting. Like the Taiwanese oolong tea we try is mm-hmm. like done without roasting. Okay. And this one is three time roasting. Okay. Um, if you're growing up like um, around Wee Mountain, or if you're growing up in South Asia, like Guangdong or Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, my impression of oolong tea is like it should be this color. This. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very bronze. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time people have a misunderstanding of roasted tea. When they see the tea very dark color, the first initial is, I'm not going to like this because it's going to taste very bitter. Mm. Even just the smell makes me think like, oh, I need some dim sum right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dim sum is from South China. <laughs> yeah, this is really, this is the, the, the iconic pairing. Yes. So this tea, even though it's heavy roasted, it just has a different note, but mm-hmm. it's not bitter. Sure. Um, it's a little bit with. Woody? Definitely woody. I was like, yeah. oh, it smells like a forest. It smells yes. like tree bark. It smells like... Woody, but very smooth when you drink it. And it has a nice mm, sweetness. But the sweetness is different from other tea too. Yeah. It's slightly more mineral yeah, sweetness. Yeah, yeah. It's because Yan Cha from that region, they grow along the cliffs because of the environment. It has a more mineral sweetness in the tea itself. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's very unique. Hokum. Mm. Hokum, yes. So gum is a word that I've never really been able to translate in, <laughs> in Cantonese. At first, it was like ginseng, my parents would say, was very gum. Mm-hmm. And this is very gum. It's almost like there's a bitterness. So yes. I used to think it just meant bitter. Bittersweet. But it's bittersweet. Yeah, that's yes. nice. It's like, because it's, it's very slightly bitter, but there's mm-hmm. something else that like yeah. lifts it up. Yeah. And... Um, like when you said it was minerally, like it, it almost tastes like a little bit metallic, but in a yes. very nice way. Mm-hmm. Like in the back of your tongue, it's almost like it's sparkling back mm-hmm. there. So I always say a good roasted tea is like that. I always compare it to coffee since you're a coffee drinker. Mm-hmm. A lot of people thought coffee is bitter, but coffee is not bitter. It's bitter because of the roasting. Yeah. So when you burn the coffee bean or when there's too much roasting, it becomes bitter. When you burn something when you're cooking, it's bitter. And when you burn the tea, if you over-roast it, it's bitter. But a good roaster should know when to stop to bring out the sweetness mm-hmm, in the tea mm-hmm. instead of bitterness. So a good roasted tea should not be bitter. Yeah. yeah. So how do you know if you're getting good tea? Like, how do you know if you're getting the good stuff? First of all, the, from dry leaves, you look at the color. Okay. And you look at the size of the leaves, like if it's full leaf or it's like broken leaves. Mm. Those also matter. And then when you brew it, the color, that's why we use a white cup. Okay. Because you can see the color, the clarity of the tea. Even with the glass shell, you can see like it's clear. Mm-hmm. Like it's very clear color. Um, when you drink it, it's um, not flat. Like it has layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are very basic to start with. And one thing I always tell customers is if you really want to be assured of your tea quality, just to brew the tea stronger, using more tea leaves, hot temperature, steep it for a longer time. And usually good tea will show the character more when you brew it stronger. Like good tea, it's not afraid to, to brew it strong. Sometimes when I travel to sourcing for tea, um, 
the way we taste the tea is like we really strong, not really to enjoy the tea, but really to just like kind of analyze it. Yes. And vice versa, if you're making it for yourself, mm. if you want a, a lighter flavor, you can use fewer leaves. You can use cooler water. You can brew it for less time. time. Yeah, yeah, you can adjust in many way. So I have to ask you this. People who are into tea, they always just say, oh, never drink tea bags. And they just like dismiss it. Mm. But why would you say you can't really have great tea in tea bags? Over the years, I think people are trying to improve the quality of tea bag. Okay. When I was a kid, my tea bag impression is Lipton tea bag. So sure. you don't really see leaves in there. Mm. Oh, that's <laughs> uh, a good point. Nowadays, you see a lot more like they were marketed saying full leaves or they're using whole leaves, pyramid tea bag. So you have rooms for the tea to expand. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I assume the quality has been better throughout sure, the years, sure, sure, sure. Okay, yeah. um, but I haven't tried myself, it, so I cannot speak of the quality, yeah. but I always, uh, I travel with tea, and sometimes like I, if I can, cannot bring the whole set with me, my easier way is um, I will bring some empty sachet, like the empty tea bag, mm-hmm. and bring some of the full leaves that I know the quality, yeah, yeah. and just scoop the full leaves into the sachet, and make my own tea bag immediately. Yeah. And that way I can still enjoy the quality and it's just a very easy way of enjoying tea. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you again so much. This has been super, super, super interesting and really delicious. <laughs> thank you. Let's have tea. <laughs> yeah. East Asian Tea Authority, Teresa Wong is the owner of the tea shop in New York City. You can buy her terrific teas at her website, teashopny.com that's T just the letter T and if you're in New York you can visit her shop get a cup to go or book a guided tasting so from the meditative purity of a Chinese tea tasting room we're going to go now to the homes and railways and streets of India where tea is enjoyed in a totally different way not simply steeped but boiled hard with rich milk probably sugar, and blends of anywhere from three to who knows how many different spices. Yes, I'm talking about chai. Masala chai, to be precise, and you really don't have to call it chai tea because chai means tea. And our guide for this journey into chai history is food and culture writer Lena Trividi grenier Hey, Lena, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis, thanks for having me. I am super excited to talk about masala chai with you. Um... And I actually want to start with your story because you have this, your story begins with this really wonderful image of your grandmother's, you know, personal ritual for preparing masala chai. And, you know, I think when I was reading it and probably as far as most people reading it, have this image that, you know, masala chai has been something that Indian people have been, you know, enjoying every day for centuries. But then there's this really striking line in your story because you say, She didn't grow up drinking it because it was invented in her lifetime. So, you know, just a couple of generations ago. So let's start with that. What is the history of masala chai? It really starts off with uh, the British colonizing India. Mm -hmm. And they had a great obsession for Chinese tea. And the Chinese basically blocked them. And they, uh, you know, it's not a a pretty history for the Indian people. Um, The British basically stole land from Indians uh, where they saw tea growing wildly. Mm -hmm. Then they 
kind of tricked uh, lower class Indians into indentured servitude to grow the tea. Mm. And then once they had all this tea, they didn't have enough consumers for it. And so <laughs> they needed to find a way to make Indians drink tea. Uh, and mm -hmm. so my grandmother, we called her Modi Ben. Um, her name was means big sister in Gujarati. <laughs> um, she was born in 1922. And in 1922, masala chai was not a tradition. And it really didn't get created until sometime between 1918 and 1930. And it didn't make its way to Modi Ben's home in Shukla Tirth, Gujarat until the 1940s. Wow. And so... Um, yeah, it's, it's a relatively new invention, which is, it surprises a lot of people. Yeah. And what is the story of that creation? Well, so what happened is, uh, there was a group created called the Indian Tea Association, and it was <laughs> owned by a lot of, um, the big British owners of the tea estates, the big tea estates in India. Okay. And they basically got together and were like, we need to make Indians buy our tea. How do we do this? And so they created a, a 40 plus year campaign to basically indoctrinate Indians into drinking this tea, the British way, of course, with, with milk and sugar. Okay. And so this means that they went to um, upper class homes and gave proper tea demonstrations on how to have a tea service. They gave away tea at public gatherings, at religious festivals, and they set up tea stalls at everywhere from railroad stations, um, street side stations, and they even convinced the government to give industrial workers a tea break every day. And they had tea stalls set up outside for them. And of course, they were religiously separated, um, one for the Muslims and one for the Hindus. Uh, and so we see even in that early time period, uh, the British were kind of encouraging the early stages of partition just through the tea. And yeah. so they did this for about 40 plus years. And by the end of the 20th century, 70 percent of Indians were drinking tea, that which is, is just yeah. Yeah. So if, if tea, you know, as it was consumed in the British style, wasn't really introduced until the early 1900s. Yeah. Like, so like 80, 90 years to convert an entire country of, you know, almost a billion people at that point. Right. Like, unbelievable. And then, yeah. Yeah. And the, the creation of masala chai. So one of the things the Indian Tea Association did was they gave tea to uh, railway wallas, which is also known as like street vendors. Um, okay. And I want to be clear, the tea that they gave Indians was the lowest grade of tea. So it was, we're talking in the early times, it was like tea dust. And around mm. 1930, they invented this method called CTC, which is known as crush, tear, curl. And it creates a low grade, strong tasting and quick brewing um, tea granules. And so they okay. gave those to the the valas and they the valas were like making it like they were told and they're like oh this this kind of tastes bitter this doesn't really taste really good <laughs> right and so i know you wanted to drink this it's not yeah i know <laughs> so they did what they've been doing for centuries which is they added masala to it masala meaning spice blend mm -hmm. and now india already had a tradition and this was a tradition that modi ben grew up with of drinking medicinal spice blends in tea Okay, so that was they already had a tradition. Not tea of, in the way with tea leaves, but like in tea leaves. Yes, it, it spices, was literally yeah. just spices and water 
boiled okay. together for different types of medicine. Okay. And so they already had that practice. And they had a practice of adding masala to foods to make it taste better. Sure. And so the Valas basically put two and two together and started making masala chai. And the first reference in history that I've really found about it was the Indian Tea Association in the 1930s. They discovered this masala chai and they got very angry. They huh. thought that the, the masala was adulterating the tea. You, you people uh, are giving them the worst tea you have anyway. Like <laughs> Right, right, exactly. And they started going to different um, valas and shutting down their stands if they saw that they used the masala. They also, like, hired um, British people to sell this tea the British way where the other valas were selling the masala chai to try to put them out of business. Huh. And as we know, uh, masala chai won. <laughs> masala chai is still around yes. and so when you look at it <laughs> yes so when you look back at it the adding of the masala was really an act of rebellion against the british and it was really it, it was like indians saying you're giving us crappy tea we're gonna make it taste good and yeah. it's kind of revolutionary right it's something that outlived the british rule and it turned this kind of tool of oppression into a tradition We'll be back with more of Masala Chai with writer Lena Trevitti-Grenier. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. That's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're all about tea on this episode, and we're talking now about the great tea culture of India, masala chai, with writer Lena Trevidi-Grenier. Let's get back to it with her. So tell me, like, in your family, obviously we've heard you talk about your grandmother, but, like, what's the role of masala chai in your family? Like, you were telling me the other day that when you visited family, you might have four or five different pots going, each with a different masala blend to suit different tastes in the family. Right, right. I mean, masala chai is really an act of hospitality. Anytime mm. I go, when I visit India, every single house I go to, they're making masala chai. When I go to visit my aunts and uncles, my Indian aunts and uncles in um, central Illinois, they're always serving masala chai with a little snack, right? Mm. Um, 
for me, I grew up seeing my grandmother, Modi Ben, every morning she'd get up really early and she would do her pujas, uh, Hindu prayers, and then she would make her masala chai and she would drink it in a little stainless steel cup with um, a stainless steel saucer. And it, as a kid, it kind of drove me crazy. I mean, Modi Ben, she took like 20 minutes to drink this cup of chai. And she would, she would tip the, um, the cup into the saucer and then hold the saucer up to her mouth and blow on it and then sip it from the saucer. Mm. And I, I didn't really understand it back then. But now as an adult, I can see that was like her tie back to her family, back to her culture. Right. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I, you know, I grew up dealing with a lot of racism, being a, an Indian American, a Gujarati American living in Illinois. And I uh, kind of rejected Indian food from like junior high through high school. I mean, mm. I, I had more than 10 years of racism going for me. And so I didn't want anything to do with Indian food. When I first stole a sip of Modi Ben's masala chai, that was the first time I was like, huh, maybe there's something to this Indian food, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it wasn't until after my undergrad, I went to culinary school. And that was the first place I went where people were asking me, are you Indian? And I kind of held my breath and they were like, I was like, yeah. And they didn't make a joke afterwards. They were like, mm. oh, well, do you know how to make roti? Do you know how to make popper? Do you know how to make? And and I got kind of excited. I'm like, oh, so it's it's okay. It's kind of cool for me <laughs> to be mm -hmm, Indian again, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And so the very first recipe I recreated was Moti Ben's chai, right? Oh, wow. I walked through the Indian grocery store. I gathered all the ingredients. Um, I made it at home and it was such a nostalgic feeling. And then also a little bit of grief. You know, when, when I was growing up with Modi Ben, she only spoke Gujarati and I only spoke English. And mm. so we didn't really connect as much as I would have liked to looking back as an adult. And so it's, um, it, it really became a tradition around that time in my like, um, probably like early to mid 20s. And to this day, I drink it like at least two times a day. Wow. You didn't, as you just said, you weren't able to speak with her. Like you couldn't, you couldn't share an exchange in terms of your language. Right. And I remember reading in your story that she actually passed away before you learned to make the chai from her. And it was um, your father who actually had a written recipe. So how did you learn to make it? Like why was there a written recipe? Well, there was a written recipe because my dad was the first member of his family to move to the United States. He came in 1969 to San Francisco, mm -hmm. and he didn't have enough money to visit home for several years. He barely had enough money to even have phone calls with the family. Mm -hmm. And so he was on his own learning how to make Gujarati food for himself. And the first time he was able to get a trip home, maybe four or five years later, he visited Modi Ben. And that's when he started asking her to write down some recipes. And masala mm. chai was one of the recipes. Now, my dad is, the, to this day, he's not a big chai drinker. But anytime relatives come to visit throughout my childhood, he would bust out this recipe and make this chai. Mm. And so when I started, um, he gave me the recipe and I originally used her recipe and then I just tinkered with it over the years. And I mean, I think almost every time I make it, I do a little something different, but it's always the same three spices that she used, which was ginger, black pepper and green cardamom. Okay. Well, right on. Well, let's get to how you make 
masala chai. And obviously there are millions of different ways to make it. Um, how do you make it? How do you make a good cup of masala chai? If you were, if, if I wanted to go away from this right now and make a cup for myself, which I do, what should I do? <laughs> um, well, so it all starts with the spices and there are so many different spices you can use. I, I've noticed that a lot of people, um, they, they get nostalgic and they like to make the blends that their family made. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also seen people like within my own family, there's factions who, you know, my, my Rajni Kaki likes to put cinnamon in her chai. And <laughs> my um, Lila Kaki likes to put mint into the chai. And that's the original ginger uh, green cardamom and black pepper. In addition um, to ginger, cardamom, green uh, yeah, pepper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you can use clove, you can use cinnamon, fennel, black cardamom, rose, mint, lemongrass, tulsi, which is uh, holy basil, uh, ajwan, um, or carom seeds, star anise, nutmeg, saffron. Any wow. of those things can be used. Okay. And so the base of most masala chais I've had has ginger, but it doesn't have to have ginger. That's like okay. an important thing. Um, and then there's what kind of ginger? Do you use dried or do you use fresh? And they create two completely different cups. The dried ginger is a little more spicy and more of a one-note ginger, mm -hmm. whereas the fresh ginger has citrus notes and lemongrass notes. Um, it's just a whole different experience. Um, so, so, so those are like where I would start with the spices, right? Okay. Then you got to figure out what do you, how are you going to treat the spices? And so there's two main ways that I've seen people uh, treat their spices. First is to make a masala, a ground masala, and make okay. enough for, you know, like 20 cups of tea. And that's actually how I originally started. Modi Ben used to do that in her older age just because it was easier. You know, take a little <laughs> scoop from a jar, put it in the teapot. Um, and... I did find that for my own personal preference, that leaves kind of like a gritty last few sips with mm -hmm. all of those spices in the bottom. Even if you use a tea strainer, you can't strain them all out. And so in my research for this article, I discovered that uh, if you lightly crush in a mortar and pestle the spices, even just a little bit, that helps release a lot of their essential oils. Mm -hmm. um, and... If you think about the masala, you blend it up, those essential oils are evaporating from that moment that you blend it. And so if you use it at the beginning of the month versus the end of the month, it's not going to have as much flavor at the end of the month. Okay. And so um, that's why I – so I now use uh, – I crush my spices in a mortar and pestle. Yeah. Right? And and that still isn't uh, big enough to strain out. Right. 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 Exactly. Right. Well, and, and some of them are, but it's it's not never um, – I just don't get a gritty sip. So the yeah. one the one caveat to that is I use ground ginger because if you've ever gotten a piece of dried whole ginger, it uh, so much effort to <laughs> to get that into a powder form. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I use the ground ginger and I use about a quarter teaspoon of that, and then I will take um, a quarter teaspoon of whole black peppercorn and I'll crush those and. Though it, black peppercorns are kind of like garlic. Like the more you crush them, the spicier they are. Mm -hmm. And so I will fully grind them. I want all of that heat. I want all of that punch. But as if you just wanted to even barely crack them, that's enough to get those essential oils flowing. Okay. And then I take cardamom. 
And the cardamom amount, it really depends on the type of spice you're using or the, the brand of spice you're using. If you're using a typical um, green cardamom from an Indian grocery store, I and I'm a huge cardamom fan, so this is not going to be for everyone, but I like around seven or eight pods of cardamom. Oh, wow, that's um, a lot, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a <laughs> lot, hardcore. it's a lot, but this is, again, this is my nostalgic flavor, right? Sure. Yeah. But if you're using um, – my favorite spice brand to use is Diaspora Co., which are these organic, sustainable spices. They play, pay a living wage to all of their farmers. And their cardamom is like five times stronger than any of the cardamom in the Indian grocery stores. So I'll only use five pods if I'm using Diaspora. Okay. And then with the cardamom, again, how much you crush it changes the flavor. If you leave it whole or just barely crushed, you'll get more of a floral flavor. But mm -hmm. if you grind it more, you'll get some of the menthol flavors and some citrus flavors. So I kind of cool. do something in between. I leave some of the, um, some of the seeds um, a little whole and slightly crushed and uh, a good chunk of them ground. And I also leave the, um, the little husks they come in because that all has flavor and you're going to strain it out at the end. Cool. Right? So I add that all to my pot with um, water. And then we come – this is kind of brings us to um, like the ratio. So, so chai, masala chai is made with milk and water. Yeah. Right. And lots of people use different ratios. The most common one I've seen and the one I use is kind of one to one. So okay. equal parts milk and water. Um, and so I start with three fourths a cup of water. I put it in my pot and I have a, a one quart pot. It's perfect for one cup of chai. Um, and so I put that in there. I put the spices in there. And um, then there's a couple different methods on how to brew the the spices and the tea. Um, some people will just put everything in, the water, the milk, the spices, the tea, um, all at once. And some people will do the water with the spices and tea, and then they'll add the milk. Um, that's kind of what I prefer. And so I, I believe that that kind of water bath with the spices really rehydrates them mm. and kind of makes like um, a, a spice brew that you add tea to. So I'll, I'll put it in there. I'll turn it on, maybe medium high. I'll let it come to a boil. As soon as it comes to a boil, I add my tea um, and the tea that I use. So if you want to be traditional, you will use CTC tea, crushed hair curl tea. Mm -hmm. And you can find this in any Indian grocery store. Um, my Moti Ben grew up using uh, Red Label Tea. That was one of hers. I prefer to use the Chai Box's uh, True Blend, which is a blend of um, Crushed Hair Curl Assam and a little bit of Orange Pico and Darjeeling, just a little bit. Um, and the amount of tea you use, again, this is, it's personal, right? Uh, the typical amount is like one and a half teaspoons. Oh, yeah. I am really, really sensitive to caffeine. And so I use uh, a half a teaspoon of tea. Okay. And so, yeah. So, so like you add pretty much any amount will do, like <laughs> just to your own much, preference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, the spices and water are boiling. I add the tea in, and I do. I let that boil for around like four minutes, and okay. then I add the milk in. And you can use any kind of milk. You can use cow's milk. You can use um, soy milk, oat milk, um, hemp protein milk, like any of that stuff works. I've tested sure. the recipe with all of it. Um, I find that whole milk 
really the fat in it really like captures those essential oils mm-hmm. from the spices mm-hmm. and makes them sing more than using like a two percent or a one percent. Sure. Um, and so you add the milk and. Once you add the milk, I keep it on medium high until it comes to that first boil. And now chai is notorious for boiling over the pot. If you don't (laughs) boil your chai over the pot, you haven't made chai enough. Okay. (laughs) Um, And it's literally like, it's like one second, it's not boiling at all. You turn your back and then it's all over the, all over (laughs) the That's when it does it too. It actually waits for that. It really does. It like taunts you. It taunts you. Um, And so as soon as it comes to that boil and I let the boil get to the very top of the pot, I turn the temperature completely down to low and that let, I wait till all the foam subsides and then I turn it back up, but only to medium because if you're using dairy milk, especially it can't handle that medium high heat. It will just constantly keep overflowing. Yeah, yeah. So I keep it on medium. And um, some people prefer to just let it come to a boil once and then simmer it a little bit and they're done. Um, the owner of the chai box in Atlanta, uh, Monica Sunny, she believes in the double boil where she lets it come to a boil twice. And she says that makes it more like creamy and rich and velvety. The method that I use is mine comes to a boil like four or five, six times. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> you just and keep I, turning away. You deal with your kids. Yeah. It boils over. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'm constantly like turning it down, waiting for the foam to subside, turning it up. Sometimes I'll have my head in the fridge and one of my, my, my seven-year-old will be like, mommy, the chai. And I'll have to run over to the, <laughs> the stovetop and turn it down. Um, I really like that, the flavor that, that the multiple boils give. Um, and if you think about it, it's kind of mixing everything up as it comes up and then goes sure. back down again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the amount of time you want to simmer it, totally up to you. Uh, I think it's going to be different based on everyone's stovetop. I do mine for around six minutes and 30 seconds, anywhere between like five to seven minutes. Um, what I'm looking for is when it's done, it equals eight ounces. Okay. And so like the first couple times I made it, I would I will like strain it using a little like um, a cup tea strainer um, into a liquid measuring cup just to make sure I get that right evaporation because that's the flavor that I like. Yeah. And then the last thing is, do you use sugar or not? Some people don't like sugar. I am a proponent of even a tiny bit of sugar. It really accentuates those spices. It really helps you taste it. Um, yeah. I have a sweet tooth, so I use a tablespoon of sugar. Okay? You don't have to, but <laughs> that's that's what I do. And so that's oh, that's how I make my chai. Well, Lena, thank you so much. I can't wait to go make another cup of chai. Thank you so much, Francis. Lena Trevitti Grenier is a food and culture writer based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you can read a terrific story she wrote about the history of masala chai and how important it is in her family at Epicurious. And on our website, splendidtable.org, you can find her recipe for fresh ginger masala tea. Well, that is our show this week. Hey, take time for a nice cup of tea today. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetta Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Special thanks this week to Gary O'Keefe at Marketplace's New York Bureau. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your downloads, and be sure to leave us a review. 
I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. <laughs>